Well, if you're visiting with us this morning, we have been making our way consecutively through the Gospel of Mark, and we find ourselves in chapter 7 this morning. What James Edwards, a commentator on this Gospel, writes as the longest conflict speech in the entire Gospel. Jesus has been met with a lot of hatred and conflict up to this point, hasn't he? We've seen on no less than three occasions that the religious leaders, the Pharisees and the scribes, have come to him with various attacks, questions, concerns. At first, they attack him in chapter 2 and ask his disciples about why they weren't fasting. They come later in chapter 2 and discuss with him issues concerning the Sabbath and why the disciples feel liberty and freedom to go ahead and pluck heads of grain as they're walking by the way. We also see in chapter 3 that they claim Jesus is demon-possessed because he is able to cast out demons. In this text this morning, Mark, John Mark, the gospel writer, is laboring to clarify this truth. God is after inward love for him and his word, not external compliance with or adherence to ritual and tradition. God is after inward love for him and his word, not external compliance with or adherence to ritual custom and tradition. And if you are familiar with the Old Testament, this is what God has always been after. This is not something new that shows up in God's heart when Jesus arrives on the scene. He's not changing his program. Rather, Jesus, in the face of the religious teachers that should know better, is teaching what God has always wanted. Tim Keller, in his book, The Reason for God, writes the following. There is a profound and fundamental difference between the way that other religions tell us to seek salvation and the way described in the gospel of Jesus. And if I just stopped there and didn't read any more of this quote, you should know that much by just reading this text. There is a profound and fundamental difference between the way that other religions tell us to seek salvation and the way described in the gospel of Jesus. Now, for our purposes this morning, Keller goes on to write, for the purposes of discussion, we're using the term religion. I've titled my sermon, Why Religion Can't Save You, and I'm, I'm using religion in a very specific way. I'm defining it the way Keller defines it here, which is salvation through moral effort. That is the way I'm defining religion. Getting right with God, achieving forgiveness from God by what you do for God. But Jesus, in this text, is clearly not teaching that. Rather, he is showing a salvation that has to be entirely of grace. Keller goes on to write, If you are avoiding sin and living morally so that God will have to bless and save you, then ironically, you may be looking to Jesus as a teacher, as a model, and as a helper, but you are doing so and avoiding him as Savior. You are trusting in your own goodness rather than in Jesus for your standing with God. You are trying to save yourself by following Jesus. It is possible to try to follow God and actually be trying to save yourself. Keller goes on, that ironically is a rejection of the gospel of Jesus. It is a Christianized form of religion. It is possible to avoid Jesus as Savior as much by keeping all the biblical rules as by breaking all the biblical rules. Both religion, in which you build your identity on your own moral achievements, and irreligion, in which you build your idea on some other secular pursuit or relationship, are ultimately spiritually identical courses to take. Do you get what he's saying? 
to be really, really good to try to save yourself is the same course fundamentally as trying to be really, really bad to try to find yourself. Self-salvation is at the root of both of those. And both are sin. One just happens to look really good and one happens to look really bad. But they're both self-salvation projects and they're both sinful courses of life. Why? Because self-salvation through good works, while it may produce a great deal of moral behavior in your life, nevertheless, inside, you are still filled with self-righteousness, cruelty, bigotry, and you are miserable. End of quote. That's our text this morning, in a nutshell. Now let's walk through it point by point and see how Jesus takes us there. I have three points this morning. Number one, the situation, verses 1 to 4. Number two, the question, verse 5. And then finally, point number three, the answer, verses 6 to 23. First of all, the situation. Notice with me verses 1 to 4 again. Now when the Pharisees gathered to him with some of the scribes who had come from Jerusalem. Now this was obviously premeditated. (laughs) This is intentional. Jerusalem's about 90 miles from Capernaum, and they have made a planned trip to come see what Jesus is up to, see what he's all about. This, this is all, and, and we learn from Matthew's Gospel that this is actually the last major conflict that Jesus has with the Pharisees in this region before he heads out. There's been a growing momentum, a growing animosity toward Jesus and his followers by the scribes and Pharisees, by the so-called religious leaders of Israel. So they make this plan, and they head toward Jerusalem to come and talk to him about another concern that they have. Verse 2, They saw that some of his disciples ate with hands that were defiled. That is unwashed. Now let me make this really clear. Really good to wash your hands before you eat. Okay, really good to do that. Jesus is not condemning that, and the Pharisees and scribes are certainly not uh, advocating that. We're going to get into more specifically what this whole defilement of the hands means, but suffice it to say, it does not mean wash your hands before you come to eat. Okay, This is a ritual, religious custom. And Mark assumes that, doesn't he? Because in verse 3, we have a little parenthetical comment. Mark inserts his his comment on this whole situation. Mark is predominantly writing to us. He's predominantly writing to non-Jews predominantly writing to Gentiles, you're not going to be familiar with Pharisaical customs and Jewish ritual. So he plugs in, in verses 3 and 4, this kind of little parenthetical comment. And he says, verse 3, For the Pharisees and all the Jews do not eat unless they wash their hands, holding to the tradition of the elders. That's a key phrase here, tradition of the elders. Verse 4, And when they come from the marketplace... They do not eat unless they wash. And there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and copper vessels and dining couches, because remember when they ate, they would lay down. Now, what's the deal here? What's going on? What's this situation all about? Well, evidently, the Pharisees have a body of tradition. If we didn't know anything about what that tradition was, we see it here. They, they They call it the tradition of the elders. And they have this body of, tradi- uh, body of uh, knowledge, this body of tradition, taken from the Old Testament. It's a, basically an application of truths that are contained in the Old Testament. So they're looking at the Old Testament and they're saying, how are we supposed to live this out? And then they create a, a list or a tradition, an oral tradition, that's meant to govern and regulate the life of the people so that they might walk in a way that's pleasing to God. They would do this in extreme ways. Obviously, Mark inserts it and says there are many other traditions that they observe, such as the washing of cups and pots and all these things. And the point of it all, don't miss the point, the point was to avoid defilement, to not be unclean, to not be impure. If you're familiar with the Old Testament, that theme comes up again and again. The problem is that these scribes and Pharisees are prescribing rituals placed upon the people that God never intended. In fact, in the Old Testament, it never says that, that you're supposed to wash your hands at every single meal to avoid some sort of defilement. That is an application that they have taken and pushed to an extreme. 
Rather, what was required in the Old Testament was that priests wash their hands before they engage in duties in the tabernacle. But they have taken this way beyond um, what God had ever intended them to do. And they have created a separate tradition and elevated it to the level of Scripture in people's minds. They have taken a body of knowledge that they think is an application of God's truth and have elevated it to the point that it's on par with Scripture in the way that these scribes and Pharisees are thinking and in the way the people would be thinking. Verse 4 mentions when they come from the marketplace, they would do this. Why would they do it when they come from the marketplace? Because in the marketplace, they are rubbing shoulders with Gentiles. They are rubbing shoulders with non-Jews. And so the idea is when they come out from being among non-Jews, they have to ritually cleanse themselves from those filthy sinners. So that's the situation that we see here in verses 1 to 4. The Pharisees and scribes coming to Jesus and his disciples to ask him about this because obviously they're not doing this thing. They're not following these man-made rules set up by religious leaders. In fact, they're just going about life and eating with unwashed hands, and the Pharisees have a huge, huge problem with this, fundamentally because they believe they're violating the Word of God. And in fact, what Jesus is going to say is, no, I'm not the one violating the Word of God. So what's the question they come and ask? Verse 5, point number 2, the question. And the Pharisees and the scribes asked him, probably in a confrontational way. Why do your disciples not walk or live according to the tradition of the elders, but eat with defiled hands? Let's get an explanation for that one, so-called rabbi. Religious leader Jesus, with your little band of followers, why are you leading them? to break the law of God. See, you are demon-possessed. How does Jesus respond? Believe it or not, you know, a lot of times when we read in the Gospels, Jesus doesn't respond to people's questions. But he does here. Not in the way that they were anticipating, but he does answer their question. He does it in two parts. He, first of all, notice their question again. He, they, they ask him, why do your disciples not follow the tradition of the elders? And then, but they eat with unwashed hands. And he deals with both of those. So the answer is actually twofold. The first answer is in verses 6 to 13, and he addresses the whole situation of the tradition of the elders. Then, in verses 14 to 23, he addresses the whole issue of defilement. So we're going to look at his answer in those two parts. First of all, his, the tradition of the elders. Second of all, the defilement of the hands. So he's going to answer this question, this objection, and he's going to talk to them about these two issues. Let's look at his first response in verse 6 through 13. And he said to them, verse 6, Well did Isaiah prophesy of you hypocrites, saying... Now, the Greek really picks up on this because this is clearly sarcastic. Clear, how nice of you to so conveniently avoid God's word. Well, did Isaiah say this? When Jesus was talking to religious leaders who studied the Old Testament and were meant to lead people into the ways of truth, he had very, very little patience for them. Now, he didn't sin in his impatience, but he rebuked them sternly and spoke to them very straightforward. And he does that again in verse 6 by calling them hypocrites. That is, pretenders, two-faced. Taken from the world of Greek theater, the, the, where they would wear the masks to hide who they really were. They're just actors. They're pretending. And then he quotes from Isaiah chapter 26, or Isaiah 29, verse 13, when he says, that lifting, so Jesus goes back to the Old Testament here in his mind, remembers reading this in Isaiah, pulls it out and says, Isaiah's talking about you all. And he says, this people, these Pharisees and scribes, honor me with their lips, but their hearts are far from me. In vain, empty, do they worship me. It's meaningless. God's looking down and saying, worthless, 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 worthless. It's empty. In vain do they worship me. Why is it vain? Because they teach as doctrines, 
teach as God's truth inventions of men's minds. Verse 8, you leave the commandment of God and hold the tradition of men. He's very strong in his rebuke here. So how does he respond to the tradition of the elders? The tradition of the elders is not God's word. That's how he responds. You, know, you want to know why my, fair, my uh, disciples don't hold to your teachings? Because God is not in it. God never told them to follow your traditions and rituals. These are things that you have invented, not that God initially told us to do. And then in verse 9 he says, You have a fine way of rejecting the commandment of God in order to establish your tradition. You have a fine way of doing that. And he's going to give an example. Here's one example of the fine way that you avoid doing God's word by keeping to your tradition. Here's the fine way, and he gives the example in verse 10. For Moses said, now Moses said this, God speaking through Moses, this is the, the fifth commandment. Moses said, verse 10, honor your father and mother, and whoever reviles father or mother must surely die. You know, Moses said that, right, scribes and Pharisees? Moses said that. That's God's Word. That's in the Torah. That's in the Old Testament. That's in the law. They said, he said that, didn't the scribes and Pharisees? They would say, yeah, he said that. Then why do you lead people to break that commandment? And he gives this example. But you say, if a man tells his father or mother, this is in the tradition of the elders. This is in their document. Their Mishnah is what it's called. But you say, if a man tells his father or his mother, whatever you would have whatever you would have gained from me is Corban, that is given to God, then you no longer permit him to do anything for his father or mother, thus making void the word of God by your tradition that you have handed down. And many such things do you do. Now let me explain what's going on here. The idea of Corban was that something could be given to God as sort of a pledge. I'm pledging this to the Lord. And by doing so, they could kind of keep it until they die. And what he is saying here is, all right, you're, you're, you're commanded to honor your father and mother. You're commanded to return good to them for all the good that they've done to you. In their older years, you're supposed to give of your wealth to take care of them. But somehow you've taught people that they can say, oh, I can't give this to my parents because it's already been given to God. And he said, see what you've done? You've told people that they can do Corbin, that they can give something to God in his name and that they can somehow keep it for themselves and yet avoid doing the very thing that Moses commanded them to do. Therefore, making void the Word of God by their tradition. They have, put, they have created some sort of tradition that actually encourages people to break God's law. And so Jesus will have none of that. And he exposes them before their very eyes. And he could have gone on, because he said many such things you do. And he could have just walked down the list and... For all intents and purposes, he could have. And Mark just gave us this. So, Jesus shows the Pharisees that they have a big problem. The most religious people on the earth are far from God. The most religious, righteous, revered people who are morally blameless are the farthest from God. They pretend to be holy, but really they just want to please themselves. They say they love God but they really love themselves. And they love the position that God has given them by being the religious celebrity that they are. They keep the rules on the outside, but they do not obey God's commands from their hearts. They seem to follow God, but they don't really follow Him. Now let me move into some application for us in light of this, because this is, this is a danger for us who have been Christians for a while. If you've been a Christian, this has been, this has been something that's, that's, that's been obvious in my life from time to time. If you've been a Christian for any period of time, you can begin to become pharisaical if you're not careful. It is very, because you get closer to God, and you become uh, a little bit more religious, or at least outwardly. Your lifestyle changes because God has done a marvelous work of grace in your life. And you begin to forsake sin, and you begin to pursue righteousness. But if you're not careful, you can begin to pursue things that you think are righteous, but are not necessarily what God told you to do. 
And you can begin to elevate those things in your own sight as more important, as, as equal to biblical revelation, as equal to that which is recorded in Scripture. The Pharisees thought that their traditions helped people obey the laws of God. They were just trying to help people keep the law. But Jesus said it actually did exactly the opposite. It encouraged people to let go of God's word because the tradition becomes what's important, not God's word. Now, are there traditions at HBC which do not come from the Bible and which are maybe keeping us from obeying God's word? Let me say it another way. In trying to maintain our traditions, do we resent those who don't conform and who disregard the history of why we do what we do? What human-made policies, rules, and doctrines have, are, can be given the same authority as God's Word? Do we reject someone's thought because we don't like his or her background training or personal style? Pharisees didn't like Jesus either. This is to be pharisaical to the core. And if we're not careful, we can fall into that very pattern of life. Human traditions, external things, human laws and rules and regulations, tell me what to do, that kind of stuff appeals to our, can appeal to our sinful human nature because they emphasize outward appearance rather than the condition of our hearts. They allow us to show off our righteousness to other people while at the same time being able to escape the hidden sinfulness of our hearts and the rebukes of God's Word. Are there traditions in our own church that emphasize outward appearance, allowing us to show off our righteousness, that actually keeps us from dealing with the sin in our hearts? I want you to ask yourself that question. What was Jesus' fundamental problem with this Mishnah, with this external tradition of the elders. What was his fundamental problem with it? His fundamental problem with it was this. God had commanded that we love him with all our heart, soul, mind, and strength, and we love our neighbor as ourselves. We have to evaluate every tradition that we hold as serving those two ends. We have to ask, is this tradition that we have as a church, is this serving love for other people? It does not fundamentally rest with does it serve you? Does it help you? Is it comfortable for you? Is it helping you keep the greatest commandment? That's the question to ask. Because the Pharisees here were, were, were doing things and saying things. These are traditions of the elders. And they were keeping them from loving people. They were saying, it's okay. You don't have to love them. You don't have to love your parents. No tradition that we ever have, no way of doing church must ever get in the way of loving God and loving each other and loving others outside of this fellowship. Ever. And if it does, we're slipping into legalism. We're slipping into Phariseeism. So we have to be immensely careful of that. We, we have to ask ourselves, is this tradition, is this way of doing things Serving love for God and serving love for others? Or is it inhibiting us from loving God and loving others? If that's the case, our traditions are making void the Word of God. Now, that's the first issue, is the traditional aspect, the tradition of the elders, and Jesus just tears it apart, rips it wide open. But then he moves into the second question that the Pharisees and scribes had, which was, what about this eating with defiled hands? eating with unwashed hands. And Jesus' basic response is, you all really don't understand where defilement comes from, do you? You really, you really think getting that dirt off your hands is what makes you pure before God? Wrong. You really think external adherence to a moral code is what gets you pure before God? Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? Don't you know your Old Testament? So let's look at his second answer in verse 14. And he called the people to him again and said, Now, for all we know, the Pharisees could have left at this point, having been once again put in their place. 
Um, I have a feeling that when Jesus rebuked the Pharisees, they probably went, talk about this later, and then walked away. Because they couldn't respond. And then they walk over here and go, and they just, they just shrug their shoulders and walk away. And so, but, he's, but maybe the people are starting to go away too. He's confronted them, and they're starting to walk away. And he's like, well, hold on a second. Hold on. Come on back here. Come on back here. Rallies the disciples in. Rallies the, any other people who happen to be there listening in on that. And he's like, let me, let me take you a little further here, and let me talk to you more about what just happened there. And he starts in verse 14 and says, He called the people to him again and said to them, Now hear me, all of you, and understand. Listen to this. There is nothing outside a person that by going into him can defile him. But the things that come out of a person are what defile him. And when he had entered the house and left the people, now he's gone on the way, and now he's gone to the house, now just the disciples are there, ask him about the parable. And it's like, well, was that a parable, Jesus? <laughs> That doesn't really sound like a parable. You just made a truth statement. You just said it's not what goes into you that defiles you. It's what comes out of you that defiles you. It's not what comes into you that makes you unclean. It's what comes out, or not what goes into you that makes you unclean. It's what comes out of you that makes you unclean. What parable? Well, Mark is not including the parable that, that Matthew records. Matthew gives us the parable. And it's basically, these are blind guides. And he uses a metaphor and a parable to describe what, what they are. In fact, let's just go ahead and look at that that parable briefly. Hold your finger in Mark and turn back to Matthew chapter 15. Here's where Matthew gives us his account of the situation. And you notice verse 12. Or actually, look at verse 11. Hear and understand, Matthew 15, 11, it's not what goes into the mouth that defiles a person, but what comes out of the mouth, this defiles a person. Verse 12, then the disciples came and said to him, do you know that the Pharisees were offended when they heard this saying? <laughs> and Jesus said, yeah, I know. <laughs> I, wouldn't, I knew it before I even said it. I knew it was going to offend them. It doesn't take much. He answered, every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted will be rooted up. Let them alone. They're blind guides, and if the blind lead the blind, both will fall into a pit. And he said, then they say, explain the parable to us. Now listen, did you get what he just said? Jesus just said that God did not plant those people. They are not part of the kingdom of God. He just called them, and that, that these religious leaders, these moral, righteous people, leaders of Israel, he says that they are actually in league with the devil, not in league with God. And they think the whole time that they are doing God's will and teaching God's word. It's frightening. Every plant that my heavenly Father has not planted, and Jesus basically says, look, leave them alone. God hadn't planted them, don't worry about it. Now, in other places, he tells them to avoid them and be careful of their teaching. But here he says, in this particular circumstance, let those scribes and Pharisees that just came from Jerusalem, let them be. They're heading back there. They're not going to affect me at all. So just let them go. Now, back in Mark 7. So the disciples in verse 18 or 17 said, uh, explain the parable to us. And he says to them, then are you also without understanding? Do I have to explain this to you guys too? Do you not see that whatever goes into a person from outside cannot defile him? Can you not see that? Since, verse 19, it enters not in his heart, but his stomach, and goes into the latrine, goes into the toilet. It's expelled. Thus he declared all foods clean, Mark's little parenthetical comment there. And he said, what comes out of a person is what defiles him. Now, that's the third time he said that. What comes out of a person is what defiles him. So from within, out of the heart of man, come evil thoughts, 
sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within and they defile a person. It is not external. It is not people not washing their hands that makes them unclean. It is what proceeds from their heart that makes them unclean. Here, Jesus shows the Pharisees the root of their problem. This is the root of not just their problem, but our problem. They are worried that sin is going to come into them from the outside. Jesus said, look, it's already there. It's all over you. It's in you from birth. Because Adam sinned in the garden and his guilt and and pollution was imputed to you and you were brought forth in iniquity. And in sin, your mother conceived you. It's right there. We are born with a toxic cup of sin in our hearts. That's what defiles us. Not avoiding certain things or doing certain things. Jesus says that we already have sin inside. It's not food coming in from the outside, but sin coming out from the inside that makes us unclean. Not food coming in from the outside, but sin coming out from the inside that makes us dirty. God is not worried about what goes into our stomachs fundamentally. God is ultimately concerned with what comes out of this inner being, which the Bible calls the heart. Not the physical organ primarily. It's the whole inner man, the whole soul, mind, will, inner person. Jesus says bad things we do, bad things we say, all start in our bad hearts. Bad things we do, bad things we say, all start in our bad hearts. That's where it comes from. Now, I've taught middle school for a number of years, and one of the, uh, one of the great examples of this, not, not the, the badness of the human heart, well, it does reveal the badness of the human heart, but how, quick we are, how quickly we are to not believe this, how quick we are to excuse our sin and root it in some external thing. What happens? Johnny, turn around. Johnny, get your head up. He's talking to me. How quick we are to assign blame, to throw it off. You know what? I had kids come to me and do this. Mr. Redfern, um, if you would change my seat, I wouldn't behave like I do. (laughs) Really, Johnny? Really? That will certainly help, but that's not going to change the way, fundamentally, who you are. I mean, imagine, imagine a person walking with a cup of hot coffee in their hand, okay? And they're walking down the street or something, and they're talking to their friend. They're not paying attention. I remember Katie and I, when we were uh, initially dating, I was walking. I wasn't carrying a cup of hot coffee in my hand, but I was walking. And you know how you're not paying attention? You ever just walked into something, and it hurts, doesn't it? You walk in, and I hit a sign like it was hanging out and smacked my head. And I was, like, trying to really get her to be impressed with how great of a man I am. Smack my head on it. Anyway, you're carrying this cup of coffee. Imagine I was carrying a cup of coffee, and I'm walking, I'm talking to her, and I smacked my head on the sign, and I turned to her and said, why'd you put that coffee in there? Or looked at the sign and said, why'd you put that coffee in there? You see, what caused the spill? The sign. But the coffee was already in the cup. You can't blame the sign or the person for ultimately spilling the coffee out on your hand. The coffee was there. So it is with our hearts. Our circumstances, the things that we bump into in life, don't put anything in the cup of our hearts. They just bring out what's there. What's already there. Just bring it out. So people in your life are bringing out what's in your heart, right? They're not putting anything in your heart. They're just revealing to you what's already there. This is a very different way of thinking than the way we're taught in our uh, change our environment will be better culture. Right? If we just change, you know, we are who we are. This is the way the world speaks. We are who we are because of the circumstances that we've experienced. It was our upbringing. It's our background. It's our education. It's our socioeconomic status. That's, what, that's why I am the way I am. Now, does that play into it? Sure. Is that fundamentally 
The creation of your individual was a, was a product of socioeconomic forces pressing in on you, filling your heart with things. No. We have an inside problem that requires an external solution, not an external problem that requires an internal solution. See, our culture says that our problem is outside of us, and the way we fix it is by getting in touch with ourselves. The way we fix it is by following our hearts. The way we fix it is by becoming who we are. Well, Jesus describes what we'll become if we live that sort of life. There's the list of sins right there. No, Jesus says, look, it's already there. All that your life is doing as you're bumping into things is knocking the coffee out. And you're getting to see it all over the place. So, for instance, what about theft? Say a person wants to be a Christian. I want to be a Christian. I want to be a Christian. I want to follow God. I want to be a righteous person. And they want to... But, but, but previously, they were a thief. They said, I want to be a Christian, though, but I, but I was a thief. And so they decide to stop stealing things. They're going to stop it. But they still want to steal. And deep down inside, when no one is looking, and they don't think anything, anybody will find out, they'll steal. Didn't we see this with Katrina? Didn't we see this with the riots in Los Angeles? I mean, were all those people just innocent and good and... Here's the deal. The only thing that keeps us outwardly good is moral constraint in our society. That's the only thing. If the restraints are gone, you're doing this if you're a non-Christian. If you're not a, if you're not a believer, if you're not following Jesus, you get full vent to this because there's no consequences, so you think. That's what happened in Katrina, right? As soon as the flood came and people began to be dispersed out of New Orleans, the people that stuck around started doing what? Cleaning up? <laughs> taking everything out of every electronic shop they possibly could. Now, did the flood put all that there? No. The flood gave them an opportunity to express what was already present in their heart. The flood did not defile them. It gave them an opportunity to express their inward defilement. You know, people think that that I mean, if, if that person person said, you know, I want to, they've they've been stealing it in Katrina and they've moved out and they're like, I want to be a Christian now. I was stealing before, but they're not genuinely changed from the inside. They still want to steal things, and so when no one's looking, they may steal them. People might think you've changed. People might think that inside, um, you know, you've changed, but really you're just you're just a pretender. Your heart still wants to steal, and you're still a thief, even though you don't physically do it anymore. That's why Jesus can say in, in the Sermon on the Mount, even though you haven't physically committed adultery, but if you looked at porn and lust, you're an adulterer. Why? Because your defilement is already expressing itself in the very ways that adultery would if you weren't so scared. It's all there. Hatred. We're all murderers. We would be. The only thing that's keeping it is moral restraint. But Jesus says, if anyone says... Uh, if anyone yells at another person and calls them a name, they're guilty of this. You idiot. You hate somebody in your heart. You hold bitterness against them. Same thing. Same defilement deep down. So sin is... Now let me, let me spend some time applying this. Sin, I'll say it again, is not an outside-in process. It's not fundamentally... Somebody did something to me that caused me to be who I am. It's not an outside in. It's rather that person treated me that way and allowed me to see who I was. So if sin is not an outside in process, neither is purity. Purity can't be an outside in process if sin isn't an outside in process. You don't get rid of sin outside in external fix, or what I mean by that, by fixing up your life externally to get rid of the internal thing. Now, we do need an external solution to our internal problem, but it's not in us behaving certain ways to try to fix ourselves because we are broken people. 
So sin's not an outside-in process, and neither is purity. Good outward actions cannot make us clean, just like avoiding bad outward actions is not what makes us fundamentally unclean. That's why I said at the beginning, you can be righteous and upstanding and moral, and all the time you're craving sinful things. You just restrain yourself. You've got discipline. But you really, really want, you know it as you're walking throughout your life in your suit and tie and you're walking through things, the things that you crave, the things that you want. Well, if I didn't think my wife would find out about that, or if I didn't think this would happen, that would be really fun to do. See, it reveals. So, so if, if sin is not an outside-in process, then neither can our solution be looking to ourselves, trying to maintain some sort of strict traditional code, some sort of strict ritual code in order to fix ourselves. All that goes right down the toilet, Jesus says. Sin and purity are an inside-out issue. Our uncleanness starts from within and gets revealed in our actions. The root problem is our human heart. So that means the fix must happen here. Otherwise, you're just tuning up something that's already dead. Tuning up a car that's been on the road for 10 years, off-road dead. And you're saying, well, all it needs is new tires. I just need to fix a few things in my life, and then I'll be better. I just need to, I just need to quit this, and then I'll, I'll be better. I just need to stop doing this. I need to start this, and that will change everything. No, it will not. No, it will not. According to Jesus, it will not change a thing. Because your change has to happen at a much, much deeper level, a level that you cannot reach. Your change has to happen at a level that only God can reach. My change can only happen at a level that God can reach. Now, all religions ultimately share the approach to purity that's presented by the Pharisees. They come with their tradition, and they say, if you will adhere to this, you will be pure. God will accept you. God will take you in. Christianity is remarkably different. God promised in the Old Testament, way back in Ezekiel 36, that he was going to give his people a new heart. Because he knew all along that is what humans need if they are going to be my people. They need a new heart. This is what Jesus was talking about when he said that we must be born again. That's fundamentally what born-again language is all about. It's about being renewed from the inside. In fact, we could almost insert that into this text, and we could say, Jesus says, there's nothing outside a person that's going into him that can defile him, but the things that come out of a person are what defile him. Therefore, you must be born again. Therefore, you must be born again if you are going to escape the defilement that is inside of you. So, many people think they only have to be good on the outside, try to do good things, live like a Christian. All that's going to produce, if you do it right, all that it's going to make you is a scribe and Pharisee. That's it. So, you want to head toward that? So, here, here's the thing. Okay, Mark, I want, to try to, I want to try to clean my life up. So, And Christians, this, this applies to you in our pursuit of sanctification as well. So, hear me on this. We, we can slip into this mindset, okay, I want to I fix this. I have a problem, I want to fix this. So what I'm going to do is I'm going to focus, try to do some new disciplines, try to get some uh, new habits, live like a Christian. And if you do that, if you pull up your bootstraps, if you get after it, if you start disciplining yourself, all that's going to happen at the end if you do succeed is produce a Pharisee out of you because you'll be real self-righteous and you'll be real proud that you did it. And you'd be looking down and have a great deal of impatience with other people who haven't gotten their life together, like you have. Or, if you fail, it's just going to produce despair. Oh, I can't ever change. I've tried so much. What can I do? And the key here is understanding that we have to have change fundamentally at the heart level. Now, that doesn't mean we're not involved. 
But that does mean we have to deal with God and get Him involved. As Pastor Sam said in a sermon a couple of weeks ago, we've got to put the Holy Spirit in the game. We have to put Him in the game because He's the only one that's going to help remove this defilement from us as Christians. But what if, what, if you're, what if you haven't been a disciple of Jesus? What if, you, what if you've been sitting here this morning and, you've been, and you're thinking, you know what? I've been here maybe just today. This is my first time here. Or I've been here for a long time. Or I've, just, I've been here for a short time. But I, I think I'm in the scribes and Pharisees camp. I think I'm the person who's trying to get right with God based on what I do. I'm trying to get right with God based on my own performance and my own record. And I've seen what it's producing in me. It's either producing pride or it's producing uh, looking down on people and, or it's producing despair in my life. Well, I have this word for you if you find yourself in that camp this morning. All religion can do is make you look good on the outside. Only Jesus can make us good on the inside. And that's his whole point here. Here's the truth. We can't get right with God by obeying certain rules. All that approach will do is make us a hypocrite and drive us farther from him. That's what scribes and Pharisees get. They are hypocrites. Because why are they hypocrites? Because they're masking what's really in their heart. They're full. Jesus compared the Pharisees to whitewashed tombs. Outside, very beautiful, nice casket. Inside, full of dead bones. That was his metaphor for these people. And that, I wonder, is that Jesus' metaphor when he looks at you this morning? Is he fundamentally saying, whitewashed tomb? Whitewashed tomb. Pretty Christian. Dead bones. Shell of religiosity. Or is he saying, because remember, the eyes of the Lord run to and fro throughout the earth, and he's focused on hearts. God looks at hearts all the time. If you're here this morning, we can put on the best show. We can walk out, say, good sermon, pastor, all that stuff. You can, you can, put it, you can fool me. You, want to fool, you can fool me this morning. You can fool me. You cannot fool God. You cannot fool God. God sees you. God knows you. God knows the condition of your heart. He knows what you really love. He knows why you're here. All that. So you must deal with him. You must deal with him. Now, how should you deal with him? And with this I close. You can't change your heart. You can try to be good, but you'll still be bad on the inside. Only God can change your heart. And here's the good news. Jesus is the doctor who came to do heart surgery on the bad people inside. The only thing that would keep you in your present state is a refusal to go into the operating room and surrender your heart to Jesus and say, Jesus, you have exposed me this morning just like you did them. But I know that you did that because you love me. You did that not so that I would run away from you, but so that you could see your need for I could see my need for you. And I do this morning. I see my need for you. I, 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 I sense that I can't fix myself. I, I can't fix it. I need something supernatural that's going to fix me. I need something that is done deep down in my heart. And you said that you came for that reason. So I'm going to give my heart to you. And you said in 1 John 1, 9 that your blood that you shed on the cross is sufficient to cleanse my dirty heart. Jesus will cleanse your dirty heart if you give it to him. So my appeal to you this morning is will you come to Jesus and will you give your dirty heart to him? Christian, will we, brothers and sisters, keep coming to Jesus 
and giving our dirty hearts to him because he wants them and he loves you and he has forgiven you of all your filth, of all your defilement, of all your guilt. He has given you a perfect righteousness. He does not look at you based upon the condition of your heart anymore. He looks at you based upon the record of Christ lived in your place. Jesus had a pure heart. And that heart before God is what God sees as you trust in him, as you are united to him, as you lean on and into him. And then it's just cleaning up on the operating table. The biggest change, Christian, has already taken place. That hard, stony, rebellious heart is gone. It's gone. And yes, you have remaining pollution. You have remaining defilement. But 95 to 99% of your problem is solved. You have, you've had the massive quadruple bypass surgery already. Now it's just replacing a stent, I guess, now and then. The major, major problem has been solved. And it's good news for those of you who have not come to Christ yet because it's not, Jesus is going to take you and he's going to clean you up. And it is great. It is so freeing to have Jesus clean you from the inside out and to begin the process of realizing that I really am new. I am a new person. I don't just, I didn't just turn over a new leaf. I am a new creation. And that's what God promises to make you. If you will give your heart, if you will give your life to Jesus, so will you trust him to clean your heart? Please do. Let's pray. Father, we, we look to you now and humbly ask that you will, that you'll do for us what we can't do for ourselves, that even through this message this morning, even through this sermon, through, through your word, that has been my prayer all week, that you would lay our hearts bare before you and that you would allow us to see uh, the condition, the true condition of our heart, what we truly love, what we truly desire in the deepest, deepest part of our hearts. Thank you for so, for so, so many of us here in this room. You have you have granted, you have made yourself the desire of our heart. And we know that that takes nothing less than a new heart to create. And we thank you that you so love us, that you have, you, you don't delight just to expose us and leave us naked, just to shame us because of our failure to do your will. But you do it always as a wise doctor, coming to us, helping us see our true diagnosis, our true condition, so that we might experience a true, deep, and lasting cure. And that is what we pray for everyone today, that they will experience a true, deep, and lasting cure to their sin problem. In Jesus' name, amen. Mm -hmm.